So Lord, we exalt your name today. We think of that day yet to come when all of us will sing hallelujah. As it tells us in the book of Revelation, we'll gather around your throne, we'll exalt your name and give you the praise that is due to you that we only understand in part today, but one day our hearts will be so fully open and full of you and our love for you and our worship for you as we see you for who you are. We look and long for that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And all God's people agreed and said, Amen. You may be seated. Last words. Last words. Um, so today and uh, the next week is Easter, and let me just encourage you, um, uh, Monday, Thursday on Thursday night is always a very meaningful service if you've never participated in that. It's a, it's a little different service than we have. It's a little more somber, a little more mellow and reflective of what happened on the night before Jesus went to the cross. So uh, please join us for that. The Hispanic Church will be joining us uh, at that service as well that night, so we look forward to that. And then Sunday morning we'll have our sunrise service at 7.30 and a breakfast after that, and then our two regular uh, 9.15 and 11 o'clock services. A great opportunity to invite a friend or somebody who maybe wouldn't come to church, but since it's Easter, they feel like they ought to come to church, it'll be a great Sunday. So use this as an outreach as, as you would. So uh, this Sunday, and then next Sunday will be Easter, and then the 8th and the 15th, uh, I have three more messages that are kind of like not Easter, and I'm calling these uh, last words, or maybe last, last words, and then the very last word. I don't know how to do that, but anyway. So these are some last words, some last thoughts that I want to, uh, to leave with you. Our text this morning is found in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, if you would turn to that, starting in verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this but ha- or have taken, already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God abides now and forever. May He bless the reading of it, the Apostle Paul talks in the first part of chapter 3 about all of his attainments and how his status and all the things he had and how it really didn't amount to anything. Big deal. And he says the true goal is to to know Christ and pursue Christ. Um, My seminary's um, motto is, is, is hard to beat. It's kind of based on this. It's to know him and to make him known. Uh, you could do a lot worse to know him and to make him known. It got me thinking about uh, in all the different disciplines in the um, educational world, in the business world, in the church world, 
well, you get in all these different disciplines, and whichever one you get into, they always talk about your core strengths. They talk about things like having a clear identity. Uh, this is who we are. This is what we stand for. This is what we're all about. And effective businesses, organizations, churches of any stripe, um, take those core, that core identity, core purpose, core value, whatever you want to call it, and they drive it in the ground like a stake. And they go back to it. And they say, here we stand. Here we stand. Purpose is another word for this. Um, a perpetual north star, a guiding light, a lighthouse, whatever metaphor works for you, that gives you direction. Mine has kind of been to help people find God and grow in Him. I've refined that probably 40 years ago now in my thinking. About five years ago, we put ours together like this. It's to know, grow, and show. To know, to grow, to show. And, you know, that's kind of a linear process. It's to know Christ, to really become a child of God, to establish this new identity, to be in Christ out of that, growing should be our consuming desire out of this new relationship that we have with God. And then the showing it should be the overflow in word and deed of our life full of God, His truth, His character, His goodness, His compassion, His kindness, pointing people to the good news, the gospel of Jesus. That was about five years ago. Around 2000, working backwards, we came up with 10 core values. And simultaneously, and not coincidentally, we had a difficult church discipline issue going on during that time, which didn't seem to be coincidental to me. The way I remember our core values is Rick, R-I-C-K, has two legs, two L's, two E's, and two G's. So, the way I remember is Rick, relevance, integrity, community, kingdom. Love, leadership, excellence, evangelism, growth, and gifts. And I made it through them without forgetting them. Isn't that good? So, before we had to know, to grow, and show, we had these ten core values. But before we had ten core values that we agreed upon in 2001, when I came here in 1994, I drove a stake in the ground. And I said, we have five guiding truths, five guiding principles that we're going to cling to. Essential, enduring principles. It started out, and I would say a lot of you probably agreed with them then. For sure, I agreed with them then, but they've become part of our DNA at 12th Avenue Baptist Church. These are principles that drive our, our practices. They drive our policies. They drive the goals of our church. And to be honest, policies and practices and goals have to change if they don't align 
with these core, essential, enduring principles. I came here on August the 8th, 1994, before some of you were even in this world. Um, Early on, in September of that year, uh, you had an installation service for me. In fact, here's a picture of the program. So anyway, yeah, I gave you my full name. How about that? Joseph A. September 11th, that's a momentous day. Um, Wow, 1994. Richard Gipper was the chairman of the board that year. He had a speaking part in the program. My part was to share in that service, and I shared then five core principles which are still here. They're still intact. Their importance has not dimmed over the years. There's been a lot of changes. There's been the Oklahoma City bombing, 9-11, ongoing war in Afghanistan and Iraq, and cell phones and texting and emails, and everyone has a computer now and Amazon, and Facebook, self-driving cars, and AI, and on the list goes on and on. But these have not budged, and at least for me, and I think for probably most of you, they still resonate. They still ring like a bell, just as clear as they did in 1994 on September the 11th when I stood in the West Building on a Sunday night service, maybe? I can't remember now. I think it was a Sunday night service, standalone service. And I said five things. They're worth remembering. Number one is this Jesus Christ is the answer. Jesus Christ is the answer. We truly believe this that He is the ultimate answer, that Jesus Christ is good news. We believe what it says in John 3 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. We skip 17 lots of times. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through Him. Sometimes people get the idea that God's a mean-spirited, hard-hearted God and He's just trying to keep people out. No, no, no. God is trying to bring people in. God's goal is not to condemn people, but to save them, to help them find a personal relationship with Him. Another great verse, 1 Timothy. This is good and pleases God. Why don't you read this aloud with me, would you? Can we read this together aloud? This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that a powerful verse? This is the plan of a good-hearted God. Jesus Christ is indeed the answer. You and I were created to have a relationship with Him, to have fellowship with Him. And you know, we go all the way back to the beginning, how that sin entered this world. Sin entered this world, and because of that, We're all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve all the way to this day. And we come into this world with a natural desire to go our own way and to leave God out and to do our own thing. And the Bible calls that sin, to live apart from God. But the story in the New Testament in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all four of the Gospels, the story is the same. God coming to earth to pay for our sins. That's what we celebrate this coming Friday, Good Friday, when Jesus died on the cross. And then on Easter Sunday, his triumph over grave 
His authority to offer to us eternal life and relationship with Him. And He longs for you to be a part of His family. And if you're not, let me just tell you today that Jesus Christ is indeed the answer. And it's not just about heaven or hell. It's much bigger than that. God wants to give you eternal life now. Get your mind around that. He wants to give you this kind of life now. God's longing for us is that our life, not only in the world to come, but in this life would have integrity and completeness and wholeness and balance, a place where your, where your inner spirit can truly sing and be free and have joy. I love the way the message says, John 10, 10. I came so they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. These are the words of Jesus. This is what He came for. More and real and eternal life, more and better life. Now the paradox of this, the paradox of this is how do we find this real life? We find this real life by giving up. By giving up to get. We find this real life by surrender to find the victory. It's a paradox. By surrendering to Christ and yielding our lives to Christ, He fills us up with the life that we've always wanted. And that's why Jesus is the answer. And that's why the gospel is always good news. And so, This is, this is what happens. And it's good news. And Jesus talked about this good news when he was here. And, and, and you know, I think people think, oh, I'm, I'm so far from God. Or I've left God out of my life for most of my life. Or, or, you know, it's too late. Or I've made such a mess. And I just want to tell you today, Jesus Christ loves people who have made messes out of their lives. Which, by the way, is all of us. Jesus got confronted by the religious people of his day for hanging out with people who were very overt, outward sinners. And Jesus said this, it is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. And that's why it's a mantra. That's why I've made it into a mantra here. And you've heard, it, heard me say this probably scores of times now. Whoever you are, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, Jesus stands with open arms for you. So 1994 to now, this is still the good news. And this message is still needed. Demographics show that there's roughly 35,000 people within driving distance of this church. 32% of them, 32% of them would check the box none when it comes to religion. None. That's 10,000 people within driving distance of 12th Avenue Baptist Church who would check none. And there's another probably 10,000 people who claim a church and claim a religion and maybe go on Christmas and Easter, but when I meet them and I ask them where they go to church and they give me the name of church, I'll say, oh yeah, who's the pastor over there? I love to do this to people. Oh, who's the pastor over there? Uh, I, I think he's kind of new. Uh... Which is a giveaway, isn't it? 10,000 people with none and 10,000 people who are nominal. 
So is it important that we stand here and proclaim that Jesus is the answer? You betcha. Do we need for 12th Avenue Baptist to be a lighthouse in this community? Yes, we do. Without reservation and without apology. It's all about surrender. It's all about surrender. Jesus is the answer, but you only find it by surrendering. And some of you could come and sit in these chairs every week, and I can't see into your heart of hearts to see if that surrender is there. It is the only way that you find life in God, is by surrendering. Second core truth, Satan is the enemy. Satan is the enemy. Ephesians 6 says it this way. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our enemy is Satan. Sometimes it may look like a person, but behind the person there's a dark force, and that dark force is always the devil. We live on a spiritual battlefield. Don't ever become complacent and say, oh, 12th Avenue is a good church, it's a healthy church. It, it is, but it's still a battlefield. I appreciate Jordan praying against the devil this, this morning when he was thinking about camp and the work that God's going to do at Comcedo. Because we're in a spiritual battle. And all through the New Testament, I see time and again, I see this warning to us that the devil would divide us and lead us astray and disrupt what God is doing. That even Christians, church people, I bet all of us know people that at some point in time, they look like they were on the path with God and they were moving in a positive direction. And now they're far away, far away. How do you explain that? I can only explain that with the devil, with one who is constantly at work, pulling, tugging at us. Two weeks from now, I'm going to preach from Paul's farewell address in Acts 20. And he says in there, he warns them that savage wolves will tear the flock. And he says, some of them will come from within and some will come from without. Be on your guard. 1 Timothy 4 warns us, the Spirit clearly says that in the latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. From 1 Peter 5, this is a great word for us for the next season, these three bullets. Be on your guard. Watch and pray. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So as we move into the future, hear me. Jesus is the answer. Satan is the enemy. We keep offering, we keep offering Jesus Christ as the answer. We keep living as though there's a real enemy in this world because there is. And so this means that we have to be on our guard and we have to watch and pray and we have to be self-controlled and alert. Jesus is the answer, Satan is the enemy. Number three, unity is a hill to die on. Unity is a hill to die on. Now, I have to say this, as I've been in ministry for a long time, there's a lot of beliefs that I have. And, uh, uh, you know, when you're a young man, you want to fight about everything. 
<laughs> you think everything is important. You think everything is a hill to down. There's not a lot of hills to down. There, there's, there's, there's just not a lot of essential things. Well, let me tell you, the unity of the church is one to die on. Because disunity will destroy a church. And you and I, if you've been around for very long and you know much about Christian work, you can go to church after church after church where disunity has destroyed the church. So my word to you in leadership is unity is always worth fighting for. Unity is always worth standing for. It's, it's, so, it's so important. Ephesians 4.3 says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then he talks about our oneness, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Unity is important. Let me say this. Let me, let me bring this home to us. We have to guard our own hearts. We have to guard our own hearts. We have to be careful that we are not in the, in the language of Scripture, we, that we don't become self-willed. In other words, it's, it's my way. I'm always right. I know better than others. There is no room in the body of Christ for competition between individuals or between groups. You see, the presenting problem oftentimes is, is, is uh, how can I say this? The presenting problem is disunity. That's the presenting problem. You know, when you counsel with people, there's always the presenting problem. If you dig around for a while, usually you find the real problem. The presenting problem may look like disunity, but the real problem up under it is Pride. Pride. Pride creates disunity. Now, let me work backwards from that. Because if you think about it, if you're going to have unity, what enhances unity? I'll tell you what enhances unity in the body of Christ. It's when we're humble, when we're broken. When we're surrendered to God, when we don't think we're all that, when it's not about us and being right and winning. When you have unity, you can build a team. When you build a team, you do better. You know what I say about team, teamwork? It's slow, it's painful, the results are better. But the converse is also true. Individual pride leads to be people being self-willed and competitive and creates disunity and it's always going to hurt the church. When you are full of pride, it's going to hurt, hurt the church. Whether that happen individually or in a team or anything else, it's going to hurt the church. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. You cannot stop it any more than you can hold a beach ball under the water. It's going to happen. Now, God takes this seriously, and church, we need to take it seriously. And I think if I had my 40 years of doing ministry over, I would take Titus 3, 10 and 11 more seriously. You know what it says in the Word of God? Warn a divisive person once. 
and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. Now that is straight talk. I mean, <laughs> nobody's blinking there. Here, let me dress it up for you. No, no. Warped, sinful, and self-condemned. It all begins with us individually. It says in, in Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We have to guard our own hearts against pride because pride drives disunity. Guard your heart. The other side is this, and let me cast this vision for you, the power of unity. What happens when we're unified? In the Old Testament, he says, five of you will chase 100, 20 times as much. And then he says, a hundred of you can chase 10,000. What if a hundred of us committed could reach 10,000 in this community? That's a synergistic effect, isn't it? That's the power of unity, the power of the body of Christ working together. But it only happens when we deal with our own individual pride, self-will, individualism, competitiveness, competing, comparing, which drives all those root sins of envy and anger and lust, which is a desire for anything, an improper desire for anything is lust. Okay, Jesus is the answer. Satan is the enemy. Unity is a hill to die on. Number four, relationships are vital. Relationships are vital. We're called to obey the two great commands, to love God and to love man. And, and we, we, have to, we have to love each other. When I first became a senior pastor, when I was 30 years old, I went to a church in South Carolina, and the pastor there that was there before me had left under kind of a cloud, and, and, and people weren't real happy with him. And I remember going to one of the leaders that I really respected, uh, who actually was one of my seminary professors, and in fact, that was quite a challenge when you're 30 years old and you're starting your first senior pastor and you come in and you look at one of your seminary professors sitting out there and I'm like, I'm going to say anything that this guy hadn't looked at from 17 other different directions. I used to peek around the corner to see if he was there on Sundays. True story. I'm like, oh no, he's here again. Oh man, what could I say? And he was just the most gracious, wonderful man. He would always be affirming and complimentary and I know I, it's just... <laughs> He was blowing smoke. I know that. <laughs> I sat down with him and I said, what happened with the last guy? And I still remember the, the, the metaphor that he used. He, he, used to, he used to skip Evan's metaphor. He said, this guy had really good groceries. He just didn't have a very good delivery system because he didn't build relationships to people. He didn't, re- he didn't build relationships with people. You can't get around that. Ministry is relational. It's just got to be. It's relationships. You know, I read this one time. 86% of people that lose their jobs, you know why they lose their jobs? It's not because they're incompetent. It's not because they're lazy. It's because they can't get along with other people. It's about relationships. Relationships. 
you know, you know, you can't get away from it in the Scripture. You've got to love God. You've got to love other people. If we're not loving each other, we're not honoring God, and it, and it just doesn't work. And that's why we have these relational, all these relational verses in the New Testament. My favorite, one of my favorite passages is in Colossians 3. Listen to this. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, that's talking to us who really know God. What does he say? Clothe yourself. Clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Where do those things happen? Those things happen in relationships. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Bearing with each other, forgiving each other. Now this is where the rubber meets the road. Forgiving other people. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. You know, we live in relationships. You know, I watched that show, on, I don't know if you've ever seen that show on, on, uh, about people living up in Alaska. Those people live in Alaska and some of them like above the Arctic Circle. And these people, they'll be out there by themselves and they live like maybe 30 or 40 miles from another human being. I mean, they are by themselves. You know what? They don't have to have compassion. They don't have to show any kindness. I mean, they kill fish, they kill animals, they, they're not showing compassion, you know. I don't show much compassion either in that area. But anyway, <laughs> I, want, I wander far afield. I've, come back, come back, Al. But these people don't have any relationships. I'm like, how sad is that? They show them in the summertime when they're outside and they look pretty happy. I'll bet you about January the 15th when they're hunkered down inside their cabin and they got snow this high outside the door. I bet you what? I bet it's, I wouldn't want to be them. I mean, I guess that's, I don't know how you do that. We're not made to do that. God didn't make us to be like, I just want to tell you, I'm throwing rocks at those folks, I guess, but I don't know how you can do it. I don't even know how you can do it, much less why you would want to do it. You sure can't fulfill the command that God has given to us to love Him and to love other people and go off and live like a hermit. And that's why we have churches. That's why we have a body of believers. We need each other. That's why we have life groups in our church. That's why we encourage this whole idea of, of community. And connecting with each other. And that's why you get to the scriptures and the words that God use, uses about the, the body of Christ. And the, the, the church is the family of God. We are a family. Okay. Relationships are vital. Number five. Let me wrap this up. This was in 1994. Remember, Jesus is the answer. Satan is the enemy. Unity is a hill to die on. Relationships are vital. Number five, relevance calls us to continually change. Relevance calls us to continually change. Now, let me add what I added in 1994. We change our methods. We don't change our message. The message of God will not change. Our methods must continually change. So relevance doesn't mean we compromise the truth. It's just, I mean, you can't do that. It's the truth. It's ageless. It's timeless. 
but we need to answer the questions that are being asked in our current day. We live in Emporia, Kansas in March 2018. That's different than it was in August and September of 1994. So that's why we as a church, and if you think back over our history since I've been here these last almost 24 years, some things have changed. Some have stayed the same. The Word of God is still our guide. Missions, still an important part of our church program. We have a missions conference. We still teach our children and our youth, and we just celebrated 25 years of Awana. Those things are still important. But we have a band today instead of a piano and an organ. We have a strong life group program that did not, did not exist until about 17 years ago. We have a strong missions program, and what we've changed is we're doing so much more short-term missions, probably thanks to the Cathcarts more than anything else, but connecting with folks with Mexico. We have a part in almost every community outreach program, and a lot of you have been spark plugs to start community outreach programs. You see, this is not a new idea. This is not a new concept. I didn't think up this idea of being relevant. God did. In fact, Paul, being led by the Holy Spirit, said in 1 Corinthians 9, 22, I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. You see, Paul would have been willing to change for the sake of the gospel. Or else... I mean, I guess he was lying to us. Gordon McDonald is my age, or actually he's probably a little bit older than me, I would guess. He's been uh, well thought of writing and speaking in Christian circles for a long time. He wrote a book called, Who Stole the Church? And he tells the story in there of having lunch with a friend who was dealing with changes with his, in his local church, changes they were making to reach unreached people, trying to do ministry in relevant ways, and his friend struggling with that. And he said his parting comment to his friend was this. You need to think about the fact that any church that has not turned its face toward the younger generation and the new challenges of reaching unchurched people in this world will simply cease to exist. End of quote. All of us know of churches that have not changed and they are dying now because they are getting older and they are not bringing in any Younger people, the next generation, they are not reaching the next generation. And I want to tell you, this strikes very close to my heart. Because I can still remember a conversation I had with a 20-something almost 20 years ago standing outside of our nursery over here one day. She was walking by and she stopped and she looked at me and she says, I don't want to be like you when I get old. She said, this church is dying. This church is dying. She said, we only have a... For some reason, our demographics were kind of down. We didn't have but a few kids in the nursery then. She had a kid in the nursery, and she took that as a marker. But she said to me, she said, I, I don't want to be like you. I, I want to be doing 
I, I, don't, I want to always be willing to do whatever it takes to change to reach the next generation. Now, I have to be honest with you. I, I didn't receive that part that she said to me that our church was dying because I knew better. And history has proven that to be true. But I did, I did receive that second part. And it became, it, it became an axiom of life for me, and that is this, is that I'm going to always have my face turned toward the younger half of our church and the younger demographic because this church is not going to die on my watch. It's just not going to happen. And whatever changes we have to make to be relevant to reach the next generation, I'm going to ask my generation to bend. I'm going to ask my generation to give for the sake of those who are still outside, for the sake of those who are still yet to come. And I say that without apology, and I've tried to live by that. Now, I don't... Uh, now. Trying to, trying to keep up with the next generation is not easy for me. In fact, I, my, some of my staff, that my nickname is Tech Dino. Okay, so which speaks to my wonderful technology skills and all that. But I'm not afraid of that. And I want us to embrace whatever we need to embrace to continue to be relevant to people in ways that are meaningful today. A couple quotes and I'll wrap this up. Um, I don't know who said it. To change is difficult. To not change is fatal. I don't think I've ever quoted him before. Benjamin Franklin said, when you finish changing, then you are finished. When you're finished changing, then you're finished. Now, he, he died about 1790 or something, so this is, this is not a new quote. This is not an old idea. This idea of having to change is not a new idea. Uh, every generation deals with it in different ways. So as I think back to, thank God for No Gross Show, and thank God for Rick Has Two Legs, but thank God for our Jesus Christ is the answer, Satan is the enemy, unity is a hill to die on, relationships are vital, relevance calls us to continually change. And I just want to tell you, you could do a lot worse than to hold those five values out there as a north star, as your guiding purpose, as a guiding light for us as a church. Now, in less than a month, I'm going to step off the stage. Are these going to continue to be the values? I think they will. Do I know they are? I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be here to, to be carrying the banner for that. Somebody else. I'm passing the baton to somebody else to carry the banner to move it forward. But I just want to tell you, that's been a part of the DNA of 12th Avenue. That's been who we are. And uh, it served us well. It served us well. So, may God bless the future of the church. I still say this. The future is as bright as the promises of God. And our best days, your best days, are yet to come. I think that has to be our driving vision our, our driving direction for us as a church. Let's stand together and pray. Don't forget Monday, Thursday, Thursday night, uh, sunrise service, Easter Sunday. 
And I think Jordan mentioned it. Still have some books over there. Great books over there in the East Lobby. If you need some, if you can't live without some books. And a bunch of free material. Go over there and grab you an armload. Please take it. Please take it. Father, be at work in our midst. We thank you for what you've done at 12th Avenue. And Lord, I thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.